Our sermon passage this morning is Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 12. As Steve mentioned, and as we will read in a moment, uh, our sermon text today records the teaching of the Lord Jesus uh, on the subject of divorce. Even before we read the sermon to text, text uh, I just want to begin by acknowledging that the subject of divorce can be a really personally painful uh, subject. In the United States today, something like 50% of marriages end in divorce. So in a room this size, it's, it's bound to be the case that divorce has been a part of many of our stories. So as we approach this topic, I just want to remind us of two things. The first is that we can trust the words of the Lord Jesus. We are not studying the harsh legal code of an impersonal bureaucrat this morning. We are studying the good and wise laws of a righteous king and a loving bridegroom. We can trust that what Jesus says is for our good. The second thing I need to say at the outset is that God's church should not be a place where divorced people are stigmatized. God's word, as we'll see, teaches that in in some cases, uh, pursuing a divorce is, is the wrong thing to do. And then in other cases, it's not the wrong thing to do. Friend, even if you have pursued a divorce wrongfully, you're in good company in God's church. The church is made up entirely of forgiven sinners who are trusting in Jesus to wash them from sin and who are walking by faith in repentance. So with that said, let me read our sermon text this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. May God bless the reading and now the preaching and the hearing of his word. Well, whether you are studying something or trying to resolve a conflict or watching a movie, understanding the beginning is crucial. 
whatever you're trying to comprehend, you can only get so far until you know something about the beginning. What are the historical roots of this thing that I'm studying? How did this conflict I'm trying to resolve start? What happened in the first 10 minutes of this movie? Understanding the beginning is absolutely crucial. And it's clear that Jesus thinks that's true about the subject of marriage and divorce. Here is, I believe, the main point of the passage that we are studying today uh, in one sentence. Jesus calls us to see marriage in light of the beginning. Jesus calls us to see marriage in light of the beginning. It jumps out at us, even from a first reading of our passage, uh, that Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce is wildly out of step with our culture. And as we'll see, that is precisely because Jesus begins his thinking about the story of marriage in a very different place uh, than our culture does. So let me give you a roadmap to help you follow along as we study through the passage this morning. Three points in today's sermon. Uh, so first, I want us to see the wrong starting point in verses 1 to 5. The wrong starting point. A second, in verses 6 to 12, I want us to see the true beginning in verses 6 to 12. And third and finally, I'd like to conclude by asking, so what should we do? There's your outline, the wrong starting point, the true beginning, and what should we do? So first, let's see the wrong starting point there in the first five verses. Our passage opens in verse 1 by telling us that Jesus left where he was, most likely Capernaum in the north of Israel, uh, and went, Mark says, to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Remember, in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus is journeying down from Galilee in the north of Israel to Jerusalem in the south. Uh, this verse indicates that as he travels south, he's sort of zigzagging east and west as he journeys. In any case, as Jesus journeys, as has happened before, crowds of people flock to Jesus. And Mark says there in verse 1 that as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus, the man, the God-man with ability to meet every physical need that these crowds have, thinks that the most important thing that he can do for them is to teach them. There in verse 2, we find that a familiar group of characters approaches Jesus as he's teaching. Verse 2 says this, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? A quick word about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember, were a conservative religious group in Jesus' day. And by this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already had at least six encounters with the Pharisees. Now, let me remind you what we've already seen from the Pharisees in Mark's gospel. So first, in chapter 2, very early in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees find fault with Jesus because he is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people? 
And Jesus says, it's because I am the sin doctor. I've come not to call the righteous, but people who know that they are sinners. And the passage immediately after that, the Pharisees again find fault with Jesus because unlike other groups, his disciples are not fasting. They say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, you don't fast while the bridegroom is here, do you? Implication, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom of the people of God. And fasting is inappropriate while I'm here. And next, Jesus' disciples are walking through a field and plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, instead of bowing to the bridegroom, nitpick what the disciples are doing. They say, Jesus, oh, why are your disciples picking grain and, and threshing it on the Sabbath in their hands? And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? Immediately after that, they enter a synagogue. Jesus is teaching. The Pharisees are present. And so is a man with a withered hand. Jesus knows the Pharisees are waiting to trap him. And so he invites the man with the withered hand into the middle of the synagogue for everyone to see. And he asks the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And the Pharisees have no answer for them, for him. And listen, this is what the text of Mark says next. This is important. It says that Jesus looked around with them, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus heals the man and the Pharisees start planning how to kill Jesus. Later in the gospel, the Pharisees are agitated because Jesus' disciples are disregarding traditions about hand-washing. Jesus turns the table and says, no, you are the ones, Pharisees, disregarding the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And then finally, in chapter 8, shortly after Jesus has fed 4,000 people miraculously in the wilderness, shortly after Jesus has supernaturally healed a deaf man, We read this in Mark chapter 8, verse 11. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, like maybe multiplying bread or healing a deaf man. Given all that we've seen from the Pharisees, we're not surprised to learn that in our passage, in chapter 10, verse 2, that when the Pharisees come to talk to Jesus about divorce... They are not coming to learn humbly from him. They're coming, as the text says, to test him, or as it might be translated, to tempt him, to trip him up. Mark is showing us that the Pharisees' starting point is wrong. Because when they approach the question, their hearts are already hard toward God. That's the bad starting point that we see in this passage. Hard-heartedness toward God. And see, the Pharisees come to the discussion unwilling to step off the throne in submission to King Jesus. This is how the Pharisees reason. If Jesus being king doesn't get me what I want, then Jesus must not be king. Because what's most important is that I get what I want. 
Right? That is hard-heartedness. The Pharisees' hard-heartedness on display throughout Mark's gospel actually explains why they have misunderstood God's word on the subject of divorce. Look again at the question that the Pharisees ask there in verse 2. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we might read that and think that the Pharisees are asking, is divorce ever under any circumstances lawful? But after studying the passage this week, I don't think that that's exactly what the Pharisees are asking. I think that the Pharisees are asking, is divorce always okay? I think that what they're asking is, is divorce an inherently lawful option? Do you see the difference, right? They're not saying, are there any circumstances ever in which divorce is justified, right? They're saying, is divorce a fine thing to do, right? Like having a bagel for breakfast, Let me give you three reasons that I think that we should interpret the Pharisees' question this way. So first, and most clearly, in Matthew's account of the same story, uh, this is how Matthew records the question. Uh, The Pharisees in Matthew's gospel on the same occasion ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for every cause? In other words, for any and every reason. The Pharisees seem to be asking about no-fault divorce. Here's the second reason I think we should interpret the Pharisees' question this way. The Old Testament very, very clearly taught that divorce was okay in some circumstances. So first, in Exodus chapter 21, God said that if a husband failed to provide for his wife food and clothing and her conjugal rights, she was right to divorce him. And second, all over the prophets, God describes his rejection of idolatrous Israel as a divorce for serial adultery. It's hard to understand how divorce could always, every time, be be immoral if God himself compares his righteous actions to a divorce. So that seems to suggest the Pharisees are, are asking in particular about divorce for any reason. A third reason to interpret the Pharisees' question this way. In Jesus' day, No one taught that divorce was never, ever permissible. No one taught that. All parties agreed with what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, that, for example, adultery can justify divorce. No one was asking, is divorce ever under any circumstances lawful? On the other hand, the question, is divorce for any cause okay, was a very lively debated issue hotly debated. So it seems that we should understand the Pharisees are asking, as Matthew puts it, is it lawful to divorce for every reason? Look how the conversation unfolds there in verses 3 and 4. There in verse 3, we read that Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, here is further evidence that the Pharisees are asking about no-fault divorce. When Jesus throws the question back to the Pharisees, 
they don't go to Exodus chapter 21 or Jeremiah 3 or Isaiah 50 where God compares his actions to a divorce. This verse where the Pharisees talk about writing a certificate of divorce and sending her away is very clearly a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So in Jesus' day, those who argued for no-fault divorce built their case specifically on a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24. As we'll see, they, they mishandled that text, but that is the text that they used. In Deuteronomy 24, God's law says this, if a man divorces his wife over some indecency or some uncleanness, if they are divorced and if that woman marries another man, then the woman may never under any circumstances remarry her first husband. That's what the law in Deuteronomy 24 says. Now, it's a very interesting law. We might study it one day if we ever study through Deuteronomy. Here is what those who argued for every cause divorce did with this passage. Uh, they took that phrase, some indecency, right? The law in Deuteronomy 24 says, if a man divorces his wife for some indecency. And they argued that some indecency means anything whatsoever, anything you don't like. And then they said, well, the law says if he divorces her for some indecency, and therefore, if you can find some indecency, divorce must be totally okay. That's how the Pharisees handled this passage. So especially popular in Jesus' day was the teaching of a man named Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Rabbi Hillel was born about 100 years before Jesus. And Rabbi Hillel taught on the basis of Deuteronomy 24 that a husband was justified in divorcing his wife even for so small a thing as burning dinner. Right? You burn dinner, that's some indecency. And Rabbi Hillel says, you can divorce. Rabbi Akiba, another rabbi of a similar time period, agreed with Rabbi Hillel saying that a man could divorce his wife if he found another fairer than she. What is some indecency, according to Rabbi Akiba? Well, I found someone I like more. Therefore, I'm going to get a divorce. Well, look what Jesus says in response to this reasoning there in verse 5. What does Jesus comment on Deuteronomy 24? We read, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Did you catch that? Wh whose hardness of heart is in the bullseye here? Your hardness of heart, Jesus says. None of Jesus' hearers would have been there when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 1,400 years ago. But Jesus lumps the hard-hearted Pharisees in with the hard-hearted Israelites whose hardness of heart necessitated this law because of your hardness of heart. Well, what does that mean, because of your hardness of heart? What Jesus seems to be saying, Deuteronomy 24 was never intended by God as an excuse to turn anything you want into grounds for divorce. In fact, if you study the passage, it's a law to protect women from abusive men. Deuteronomy 24 regulates divorce, Jesus says, which only happens 
as a result of hard-heartedness toward God. Jesus is saying, where there is divorce, there has been hard-heartedness, at least in one party. We see this in our modern culture's attitude toward marriage and divorce. The Pharisees' hard-heartedness toward Jesus basically consisted in the attitude that what matters is that I get what I want. Jesus, if, if you being the Messiah doesn't get me what I want, then you must not be the Messiah because I get what I want. That's for sure, right? That's, that's the attitude with which our popular culture approaches marriage. Marriage is about me getting what I want, right? Maybe what I want is stability. Maybe it's companionship. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's support. Maybe it's children, But whether or not I continue in this marriage is not determined by God's design or by God's wisdom or God's glory. Whether or not I continue in this marriage is not even determined by the other person's welfare or the welfare of anyone else. Whether or not I continue in this marriage is determined by whether or not I think that it continues to get me what I want on my terms. And if it doesn't, I'm out. Right, the teaching of Rabbi Hillel has prevailed. If you find someone fairer than your spouse, that's some indecency, and divorce is just fine. Friends, can you see that our world begins its thinking about marriage and divorce from a place of hard-heartedness, from a really bad starting point? Our culture's Starting point prioritizes our short-term and poorly calculated happiness over God's wisdom and glory and will. And friends, listen, this is not unique to the question of marriage and divorce. This is one way of looking at the most fundamental question that we are always answering as we, we live our lives. What's my starting point? What's my ultimate authority? What is my highest priority? Is my starting point, I want? Or is my starting point, in the beginning, God? That brings us to our second point this morning, which is the true beginning. There in verses 6 to 12. In these verses, we see that Jesus, as we've said, calls us, to see marriage in light of the beginning. In verse 5, Jesus has just acknowledged that in Deuteronomy 24, Moses does regulate divorce in response to human hard-heartedness. Look there at what Jesus continues to say in verses 6 to 9. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus calls us to begin our thinking about marriage 
in light of God the Creator and His good design. Jesus is showing us the first 10 minutes of the movie. He's turning back to page 1 and page 2 of the Bible to remind us what marriage is about. Jesus quotes two passages from Genesis there. First, he quotes Genesis 1:27, God made them male and female. And this, this is another assertion that our culture doesn't care for, uh, but Jesus is very clear about it. We don't give ourselves our own identity. God gives us our identity. And one part of that identity is that we are either male or female. There is no in-between and there is no switching. So as Christians, we should treat and speak about people who disagree with us about this with compassion and kindness and respect, says the book of 1 Peter. We also need to be very clear in our own minds and in our speech that our identities don't come from our choices or from our feelings. They come from God as male or female. Jesus asserts along with Genesis 1.27 that God made male and female. Our second text that Jesus quotes from Genesis is from the reading that uh, Diane read for us earlier. Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, we, we need to notice that Jesus says that a marriage is a, a union between one man and one woman. Uh, we need to treat and speak about those who disagree with us about marriage with dignity and kindness. Those who disagree with us about marriage are not first and foremost enemies in a culture war. Right? They are sinners like us who need Jesus we don't serve them by equivocating. We serve them by being both humble and clear about what God says. We are not free, nor are we wise, to tweak God's definition of what marriage is. Jesus' words here provide much clarity in the midst of 21st century confusion. But remember, Jesus is not primarily speaking to first 21st century confusion, no one would have had to made those points more than 50 years ago. Jesus, remember, his primary purpose is to show us the beginning of the story of marriage. Look what Jesus adds there in verse 8 after he quotes from Genesis. He says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is saying that from the beginning, God's design in marriage was that in marriage, a man and a woman would be united as one in the closest possible human union. God's design was that as a man and a woman make vows to one another, commit to each other for life, and give themselves to each other sexually, that two would become one, and that that bond should not be broken that's why God made marriage. And Jesus calls us to understand God's design as we think about marriage. And as the story of the Bible continues to unfold, 
uh, what we see is that God's plan for marriage has an even more ancient beginning than Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Have you ever been watching a movie and you've seen the beginning of the movie, but you come to a, a clip in the middle, which is a flashback or a backstory that reveals that the drama that you find yourselves in has an even older origin than what you had thought. The beginning of the movie was not the beginning of the story. It finds its place in a bigger and deeper story. Friends, as the story of the Bible unfolds, that's what we see about marriage. That's what we saw in the scripture that Jill read for us earlier. This is what we see about the beginning of God's plan for marriage. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's plan from all of eternity was to reveal what he is like. And his method for doing that was that his son would purchase a bride at the cost of his blood and be united to her forever in love. And God loved that plan of Christ purchasing the church so much that he stamped that plan on the fabric of human life. And that stamp is called marriage. It's a picture of the display of God's eternal love in Jesus for his people. So brothers and sisters, if you are married, your marriage is meant to be a good gift to you. But your marriage is not first and foremost about you. It's not first and foremost about your spouse either. Your marriage is first and foremost about the display of God's glory as a picture of his love commitment between Jesus and his bride, the church. That's why Jesus concludes as he does there in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate Jesus says that when a man and a woman are married, God works to create a union or a bond between them. And Jesus says, don't break that bond. This makes sense of what Jesus says elsewhere about divorce there in verses 10 and 12. We read there, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus says, look, if if a man leaves his spouse for someone else, even if he does all the paperwork rightly, he is wrongfully fracturing the union that God has created in their marriage. Jesus says he's committing adultery. The same is true for a woman who does that to her husband. This also makes sense of what we see in the New Testament about valid grounds for divorce. There are valid grounds for divorce in the Bible. The theology undergirding the specific prohibitions seems to be, don't break the one flesh union. Don't break the covenant. But if the other person breaks the covenant, divorce can be right. In Matthew 19, Jesus says very clearly that if if one party already fractures the covenant, for example, through adultery, uh, the other party may divorce. 
Jesus doesn't say divorce is always required, but in that case, it is permitted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that if an unbeliever abandons a Christian to whom he or she is married uh, because of the faith, he says, let it be so. The other partner has broken the union. The, The believer is not bound, not enslaved. Many biblical scholars have also argued on the basis of texts like Exodus 21, remember, which said that if a man doesn't provide food and clothing and conjugal rights for his wife, she should leave him, she can leave him. Many other biblical scholars have argued that other horrendous evils, uh, such as physical violence, uh, can breach a one flesh union uh, and justify divorce. These are very difficult matters about which godly believers disagree. Uh, Our passage is not a comprehensive guide for determining valid grounds for divorce. Uh, The wisdom of Scripture would encourage navigating something like that uh, in the wise counsel of church leadership and a loving church family. Uh, But our passage does give us a north star uh, for thinking about marriage. And it is that what God has joined together, let not man separate third and final point this morning. We've seen the the bad starting point, uh, the true beginning. What should we do? How should we respond uh, to this teaching of Jesus? Well, initially, let me give you just very briefly five quick applications. Five quick applications of what we've seen. First, in every area of life, we must turn from hard-heartedness. Don't emulate the Pharisees in bringing to the table an unwillingness to submit to Jesus. Don't make priority number one, I get what I want. Make priority number one, Father, thy will be done. He's a good God and we can trust him with that. Number two, we should take Jesus' words about divorce seriously as a church membership. Again, we've, we've seen very clearly not all divorce is sin. Some is. We as a church must be willing to lovingly steer each other away from all sin. That includes divorce uh, on without valid grounds. Uh, number three, we should not treat all divorce the same. I hope that it's been clear from all the scripture that we've referenced that there, are, there is more than one kind of divorce and we should not see them all the same. Uh, Number four, we should consider carefully the whole counsel of God as we interpret the Bible. Uh, You might say that the Pharisees get it wrong because they fail to do biblical theology. They mishandle one isolated text because they fail to zoom out and see it in light of the story of Scripture. And number five, we should be ready to extend, eager to extend, the grace of the gospel to all people, all people, all people, including those who have divorced wrongly, including those who reject God's teaching about marriage and divorce altogether. Where is Jesus as he says these things? He's on the way to Jerusalem to die on the cross, to pay for the sins of his people, to rise from the dead, to give everyone who trusts in him free and eternal life. Those are all good. Those are all important. I'm not going to spend any more time on those applications. 
Instead, I just want to close by dwelling at slightly greater length on two key applications of this passage. First application, if you are married, fight for your marriage to the glory of God. If you are married, fight for your marriage to the glory of God. Again, I want to be really clear in acknowledging that there are times when it's right to get out, when that's the right thing to do. There are exceptions, but this is the baseline command that Jesus gives. What God has joined together, don't let man separate. I am not married. I have never been married. When I talk to really godly people who are married, whose marriages are beautiful, they all tell me that marriage is unbelievably hard. Often, they tell me that in the presence of their spouse. Not once has the spouse responded, I can't believe you think it's hard to be married to me. Right? The spouse is usually nodding vigorously in agreement. Yes, it is hard. Marriage is hard. Let the reader understand. No, I'm just kidding. Godly people who are married tell me, that no sooner do two sinners enter the covenant of marriage than the gravity of sin starts to pull them apart. Miscommunication, non-communication, expectations, quarreling, bitterness, petty annoyances, thoughtlessness, sexual immorality, laziness, selfishness, difficult circumstances other priorities that are good and right in themselves. These things can pull apart what God has joined together. So brothers and sisters, if God has given you the good gift of marriage to the glory of God and for the display of what Christ's love for the church is like, fight for your marriage. Pray earnestly and fervently and unceasingly that you and your spouse would be united in love for Christ and for one another. Have hard conversations with your spouse. Pursue your spouse even when it's uncomfortable. Show Christ-like love. Seek counsel from other older godly couples in the church. Seek whatever help, whatever resources you need. Fight for your marriage, not because it's easy, not because I'm saying so, not because your spouse is necessarily worthy, but because Jesus is the worthy bridegroom. Single people, here's how you can help if you're a member of the church. Go online to our website, franconiabaptistchurch.org. Go to the member resource page and download a directory. If you need the password, ask any of the elders for it. Ask any of the members for it. We gave it out at the last members meeting. I'm not going to announce it right now. Print out a membership directory and pray every day for a few names in the directory. Don't skip the single people, right? Don't skip. Don't be skipping me. Don't you dare skip me when you pray. When you come to the married members of our church, pray for their marriage. Lord, I pray that so-and-so and so-and-so would love one another well to your glory. 
I pray that so-and-so would love and give himself up for his wife like Christ did for the church, and that so-and-so would love and submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. Bless them, give them joy, help them to love Jesus most. Amen. Saints, what could be clearer from our passage than that marriage is important to Jesus? If it's important to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, it should be important to us. Fight for your marriage to the glory of God. May God give us grace to do that. Second, finally, and most importantly, our passage reminds us to rejoice in the steadfast love of the bridegroom, Jesus. Christian, whether you are in a healthy marriage or a struggling one, whether you are single or divorced or widowed, you have a glorious bridegroom in the Lord Jesus. Brother, sister, if you are in Christ, Jesus has joined himself to you in a union that no man can separate for all of eternity. And listen, there is no better bridegroom than the Lord Jesus. There is no one more wonderful to be married to than the Lord Jesus. I shared this before. Last year, I read a book by a Christian author named Rebecca McLaughlin. And McLaughlin wrote about the wedding vows that she and her husband made to one another. This is what they said to one another. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. Christian, that's what Jesus says to you. All that I am, the Lamb of God slain to wash sins, risen from the dead to give new life, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, perfect and unbroken fellowship with the Father for all of eternity, I share with you. Christian, Jesus gives you his undying love for all eternity. The Song of Songs, the love poem of the Bible, says that love is strong as death and fierce as the grave. Many waters cannot quench love. God's word says, we weep because so often in this world, marriage falls short of that. But Jesus' love never does. It is the love stronger than death, fiercer than the grave, unquenchable by any water, any circumstance, any sin. That's exactly what we celebrate as we turn to the Lord's table. We rejoice that all that Jesus is, his very body and blood, he gives to us in love. We rejoice as we take the Lord's Supper in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns and the church enjoys the fullness of his love for all eternity. Let's give thanks to God now before we pray, or before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and love and steadfast kindness and faithfulness extended to us in the Lord Jesus, that he is the faithful bridegroom, the redeemer of the unfaithful church, the lover of our souls, who knows what is good, who knows what is wise, who knows what is best. Father, have mercy on us for our hardness of heart. 
move us to trust you, to think about every facet of our lives in light of your good word, to reciprocate your love by faith as we see how good you are. God, as we come to the Lord's table, would you give us faith to behold in these signs a pointer to the Lord Jesus, our great bridegroom. Would you make us into his image as we commune with you now? In his name we pray. Amen.